Tonight we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God, um, and we have a page of notes for you. If you don't have one of those note pages and you'd like one, if you raise your hand, I think Bob has these. The reason I put those references there, it's a, it's a graphic, it's an illustration. I wanted you to see that this is a major subject in the Gospels. And um, if you want to, you can read that. Um, but the point is not that you would read it, but you might notice that the uh, numbering down at the bottom of the page says there are 52 such references in the Gospels and uh, technically in Matthew, Matthew only. And I've thrown in a couple there from the Gospel of John just because there are significant references, but not even including Mark and Luke and not mostly including the Gospel of John. You have all these references, and that should help you to understand that this is not a small subject in the Gospel of Matthew or in the life of Christ or in the study of uh, the New Testament period. So uh, that's why it's there. No, I don't expect you to read it, Tracy. I just want you to see there are 52 references, 50 of those from the Gospel of Matthew all by itself. And if that happens, then uh, I've accomplished my purpose. All right, I wanted you to see this because... The gospel of the kingdom is no small subject. And you see at the very top of your page, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So as soon as Jesus gets started in his earthly ministry, he's preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is somewhat familiar to you if you've been raised around Bible things. And, you know, you you can imagine the Salvation Army guy out in the Civil War days preaching to the troops, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you can imagine this preaching. It's in, it's in a, a, a Christian context and makes sense. But when you think about it, um, it doesn't make that much sense if you went to somebody today and said, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He would have no idea what you're talking about, what you're asking him to do. So it's obviously very, very, very important because there are so many references to it. But it is not a slam dunk topic that we all perfectly understand right from the start. So it's good for us to have a look at this. I wanted you to see it toward the bottom of the page. Once you get past those references, um, you see what it says, John the Baptist's message was about the kingdom. So it starts even before Jesus begins his earthly ministry with John the Baptist. So Matthew 3, verse 2, John the Baptist came preaching and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's John the Baptist's message. You see, it is Jesus' message from Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when you come to Matthew 10, and he is sending out the many disciples, 70 disciples, He says to the 70 disciples, wherever you go, here's what I want you to say. Preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So wherever you turn, John the Baptist, Jesus, the 70 disciples going out, that's the message. All right. So if you turn that page over, we're asking ourselves, well, what is this kingdom that they're all preaching about? And it's very tricky. It's, it's, you know, when you are very young, And you go to the zoo. Nobody expects a five-year-old to know the difference between a monkey and a chimpanzee. If a five-year-old says, oh, look at the monkey pointing to a chimpanzee, that's fine. 
He can say that. He's only five. But if you do that in high school, if you do it in college, suddenly it's not cute anymore. You're supposed to be able to tell the difference between a monkey and a chimpanzee. Sometimes when you're new to the faith, you think, oh, the kingdom of God, that's heaven. All right. Yes, it's related. But at some point in your spiritual progress, you're supposed to tell the difference between the invisible kingdom of God and the millennial kingdom of God. And you're supposed to know which one is in focus at this moment and which one is going to be the focus of the gospel in a future moment. And you're really not supposed to get them all tangled together. And so it's not as obvious as maybe it should be or seems like it should be at first glance. I remember when I was a youth pastor, there was one of the adult Sunday school teachers, and she was uh, looking at her Southern Baptist curriculum. And uh, the the project, the assignment was that uh, she should go around to various adults with a little handheld cassette recorder and interview people like a journalist. And so she was running around different people in the church and putting the microphone up to them and say, you know, can I ask you, are you in the kingdom of God? And, you know, you get various answers. Some people say, sure. And in a sense, that's true. But it's not something that you can just say yes or no to without all kinds of baggage, conditions, and provisos. So it's not that simple to answer the question. So at the top of page 20, we're saying, well, what is the kingdom? And whether we call it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, either way, what is this kingdom that we're talking about? And you see the answer. A kingdom is a place where God's rule is strictly enforced as with a rod of iron. You see that from Psalms 2, from uh, Revelation 12. Uh, You see the hollow bullets there? Every kingdom, by definition, requires a king, subjects, and territory. If you don't have those three, you don't have a kingdom. You need a king. You need people for the king to king over. And you need some kind of a territory, a country, a nation. So we sometimes say, with an R, you need a region, a reign, and a realm. And if you don't have the three R's, you don't have a kingdom. So, where is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God exists today wherever God is truly the king, wherever there are citizens, and wherever there is a place in which he rules absolutely. Of course, God rules all the universe. But that's different than ruling with a rod of iron where he's doing it exactly how he wants to do it. All right, now he is allowing the devil and evil people to do a lot of really bad things that displease him. He's not always going to do that. That's what he's doing today. So you see the next line there, that first solid bullet. It says, today God's reign is invisible. It is in heaven And in the hearts of his people. So if Jesus is the king of your heart, then he is king. He may not be the king of the fellow's heart who's driving by an Indian River Road right now. But he's the king of your heart. He's your king. So that means that we have one of the elements. He is also uh, the king over citizens. Because there are people who follow Jesus all over the world. 
So for those citizens, wherever they are in whatever tract of land on planet Earth, he's the king over those citizens. So we have a king. We have a citizenship. What's the place? Well, the place right now is only heaven. In heaven, everything is done precisely as God wants it to be done. It's not the case here on earth. And the Lord is displeased with many things that are happening with our own uh, government, the governments of the world, the world in general, the world system in general. So today, God is the king, but his reign is invisible. You don't see the king. You don't know where his boundaries are. Where does his land begin and end? You can't see that. Uh, it is in heaven itself. And here are some references to kind of help clarify what's going on there. So the first bullet under that point says God's reign is invisible in heaven. We know that because John 18:36, for example, has Jesus being tried. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should be delivered to the Jews, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. So Jesus says, my kingdom isn't from here. So don't be looking around for some place on the map to say, this is where Jesus reigns. He says, my kingdom isn't from here. So at this moment, that's the truth. The kingdom is in heaven if you want uh, borderland. And then you see the second bullet there. The kingdom is also in the hearts of people, which, of course, is invisible as well, in the soul of an individual. So from Luke 7, 21, Jesus says, Neither shall they say, Lo, here or lo, there is the kingdom. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Like, oh, the kingdom of God is within you. So the kingdom of God is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. The kingdom of God is in heaven. And the kingdom of God is in hearts. The kingdom of God is within you. You see another text I provided for you there, Mark 12, 34. When Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, this fellow who was asking about uh, who the neighbor is or the first and great commandment, Jesus answered and said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no man dared to ask him any question. So that fellow was not close spatially to heaven. You know, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He was about ready to enter into it spiritually. And maybe in time he was actually converted. And then the king, Jesus, would be his king. He would be a citizen of that kingdom. So, and then one more text where you have the indented bullet there, uh, including the church. The church is the kingdom. Jesus is the boss of the church, the king of the church, the church. The congregation is his citizenship. Matthew 16, 19. Uh, to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So obviously we're talking about the church itself invisible. You never know who's really in the church and who's not. Is that guy a poser? Is he a pretender? Or is he really a child of God? Don't know. It's invisible. You can't tell. But wherever is the true church... You have the king, you have a citizenship, and of course, the land is heaven. And that's all invisible. So when my friend walked up in Sunday school and interviewed various adults and said, are you in the kingdom of God right now? You could say, in one sense, yes, I am part of the invisible kingdom of God because I have an invisible king who reigns in my invisible heart at this very moment. So yes, I am. On the other hand, 
I have not entered heaven yet. And the kingdom has not been revealed visibly and physically, tangibly here on earth. So you might say, I am not in the fulfilled kingdom, but I am in the kingdom. And that's why it's a difficult question. So that's how things are today. Does that raise any questions or observations, Josiah? Yeah, Josiah's question, if you can hear, when we do the model prayer uh, and pray thy kingdom come, we are praying for the millennium, for the millennial events, uh, the fulfillment of Messiah's kingdom. That's exactly what we're praying for on earth because there's already a wonderful kingdom in heaven. The point is on earth is not so great right now. So, Tom, the biggest problem, well, there are lots of problems. Problem number one, what most people are going to do, and this is very sad, what most people are going to do is say kingdom of God is heaven. And there is an aspect of that which is true. The kingdom of God is in heaven at this moment. And there are, you know, when we talk about the rapture, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, you can't go to heaven looking like this, you know, flesh and blood. You've got to be changed. So, so here's what's going to happen. If you say, oh, and, and, and since we're doing this, it's the old problem of not being able to tell the difference between a monkey and a chimpanzee. So here's what you're going to do. The rich young ruler walks up to Jesus and says, what can I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, oh, okay. So inherit eternal life, inherit the kingdom. Um, We're talking about heaven. I mean, that's, we're all just talking about heaven. So what you've done then, you have created a monstrosity, a theological monstrosity. And it's going to have implications in almost every aspect of theology. So, for example, of course your eschatology is shot. You no longer believe that there's going to be a millennium. So when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, you think, well, that's ridiculous. Why would I want to inherit the earth? I don't want to inherit the earth. I want to go to heaven. So you have no concept of what Jesus was talking about, and that's actually a pretty big deal um, I don't know how much we'll get into that. We'll see. But anyway, so you have this idea of inheriting the earth. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And you have the idea of inheriting eternal life. Well, you would think, hey, inherit the earth, inherit eternal life. That doesn't match very well, does it? And the answer is, no, it really doesn't match very well. But most people are just going to jam it all together and make it salvation and make it heaven. So your eschatology, your doctrine of the end times, is going to be absolutely catastrophically obscured. You don't even have a chance. There's page after page in the Bible that talks about the kingdom of God on earth and the joys that are going to come on earth with the wolf and the lamb lying together. I mean, page after page is closed to you because all the great prophecies of the Old Testament that talk about the Lord's kingdom on earth are just lost, senseless. So the frustration of reading the Bible and thinking, that really doesn't apply, that doesn't make sense, I don't know what to do with that, page after page. So that's eschatology. We probably shouldn't get into it so much now, but when you come to the Pauline epistles, you're going to find in Galatians 5, in 1 Corinthians 6, that these people who do certain things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And you say, oh, that means that they can't go to heaven. Almost everybody just jumps to that conclusion. 
And that's basically the same as not being able to tell the difference between a monkey and a chimpanzee. We're not talking about the people doing those things not going to heaven. They shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We're talking about them not being rewarded on millennial earth. Um, Paul and all the apostles constantly talk about Jesus coming back, Jesus coming back, Jesus coming back. Coming back to what? To earth. The whole thing is about the earth. And we have to be, be ready when he comes back to earth because he's going to reward certain people. And if you are not living a godly life, you're not going to inherit the earth. That's exactly what Jesus said. The meek are going to inherit the earth. So the point is, when Jesus returns to earth and sets up his kingdom, you might not even be living on planet earth if you're a fleshly Christian. New Jerusalem is a wonderful place. And New Jerusalem is the main residence of all glorified saints. That is evidently where the church is going to be for all eternity, except in the millennium. In the millennium, New Jerusalem hovers just over the earth. Evidently, I saw New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, obviously from earth. He sees it coming down from heaven to earth. So here's the deal. You don't live well in the Christian life. Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom says, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. The meek shall inherit the earth. Oh, but you didn't suffer with him, did you? And you weren't meek, were you? So you know what? We're going to have this millennium here for a thousand years, and you wait for us in New Jerusalem. Go on. This is not for you. And that's what it means to inherit the kingdom. We're talking about, you know, the kingdom. You can go to heaven. Uh, By the way, on the subject of inheritance, you have the apostle Peter talking about to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. Well, surely you can see that the inheritance reserved in heaven for you is not the same as inheriting the earth. What could be more different than blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth and an inheritance reserved in heaven for you? How could anything possibly be more different than that? Inheriting the earth and inheritance in heaven. But since we can't tell the difference between a monkey and a chimpanzee, think, oh, all of those are about saved people going to heaven. They're not. So when Jesus is talking about inheriting the kingdom, or in this case, repenting for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is saying we're going to establish a kingdom around here on planet Earth. And you have to be ready for that. And that's what he was talking about. So Tom, in answer to the question, why does it matter? It makes the Bible almost indecipherable because you're jamming things together that don't fit very well. The poor, I always say this really carefully because I know we have people in our own church who are really into lordship salvation and that's fine, you know, whatever. But you end up with lordship salvation people. Oh, because Galatians chapter 5 says that the people... Uh, who don't inherit the earth. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Uh, And then you start to get into envy, uh, rivalry, uh, factions, parties, um, people taking sides, being contentious. 
Churches are filled with people who do that. Filled. What you'd have to do, and it says, Paul says in Galatians 5 there, says, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So basically, we've just said that soccer moms are lost, going to hell. Because they're in our church, and they have rivalries, and envies, and factions, and they cause church fights and things like that. So, I'm sorry, you're a really nice soccer mom, but you go to hell. Inheriting the kingdom of God is inheriting the millennial kingdom. And when the Lord sets up his reign, and who's going to be rewarded with reign, with um, being his deputies on earth, to be his sidekicks, his helpers, a fleshly Christian will not get that. The fleshly Christian evidently is going to be told, you go sit this one out somewhere, presumably New Jerusalem. But we're not saying that the soccer moms who have spent their lives in church but they cause little problems back. We're not saying they go to hell. We're saying they're going to have to sit this one out. They don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's the way Ephesians 5 says it. So anyway, what does it matter? What area of theology is not affected by it? From something as benign as your end times theology to something as daily and practical as who gets to inherit the kingdom of God. And everything is sort of hinged on this. Oh, and so let me just say this, since we've gone down this track so far already. I mean, everything is affected by this. For those of you who are taking my First Corinthians class, uh, this might be a little redundant, but um, the language of honor and shame is everywhere in Scripture. We mentioned that this morning, and we gave you some Proverbs about that. But it's not just a Proverbs thing. Um, Paul says, I keep under my body, 1 Corinthians 9, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. Castaway. That means unapproved. Not a good job. So the Apostle Paul was saying that he was aware of the possibility of being ashamed. Uh, Paul to Timothy, you be diligent to show yourself approved Approved, that's the language of honor and shame. Approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. Obviously, ashamed is the language of honor and shame. Uh, rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, 2 Corinthians 5. The Apostle Paul says, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Accepted of him as a born-again individual. And Paul says, I'm concerned about being accepted of him. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And then, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. All right, so the things done in his body while he was on earth in his earthly career. And everybody's going to receive for the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Good or bad? What is this? That's the language of honor and shame. You're going to receive something in your body, you know, or something because of how you lived when you were in your body. And some of it is bad. There are other cases like this. 
But from start to finish, Paul says Jesus is going to come back. And while it's true, the rapture is very, very important to us. Very, very important. You know, I'm never going to underestimate that. But most of the time when Jesus, when there are passages about Jesus coming back, it's not really about the rapture. It's about him coming back, you know, here with his feet on the ground. And the scary thing that Paul says, you know, for himself, for Timothy, for all of us foot soldiers, the scary thing is that when he comes back with his feet on the ground, there's going to be honor and shame for believers. We have entire segments of the Christian population who wouldn't dare to suggest that there's ever any possibility of shame for a born-again believer. They will say that God could never love you any more than he already loves you. Of course, we're not talking about love. Sure, there's no problem. God could never be happier with you than he is already because you are his child. He could never be happier than he is already. And uh, there's nothing you could ever do to make the Lord more happy with your life than he already is. I mean, entire segments who don't even allow any possibility for shame for a born-again Christian. I mean, this is... This is the majority of our Christian brothers and sisters have no concept that there could ever be any shame once you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and certainly not once you die or if he returns. No chance. And yet that is everywhere in Scripture. Paul says it scares me to think about it. So when Jesus puts his feet on planet Earth and he sets up his kingdom and there are people, if we suffer with him, we should also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Deny us a reign. He puts his feet on his kingdom. He says, now I have some very special people that are going to help me with this rain. And I also have some people who are going to sit this one out. Um, so you all who are helping me come over here, uh, angels escort the rest. I think they'll be in New Jerusalem. I don't know what they're going to be doing. But I know that the unrighteous ones, the fleshly carnal Christians, are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God doesn't mean they don't get to go to heaven. It means when the kingdom is set up, you sit this one out. We'll see you in a thousand years. And they're going to be very happy in New Jerusalem. But it still is the language of honor and shame. And you're going to help me, sir. And you, sir, are not going to help me. Um, You go over here now. And that is exactly what you read in Scripture over and over again. It is a scary thing even for the saints, for no less a person than Paul, for Jesus to come back to earth. And that's all related to the subject of the kingdom of God on earth. We're not talking about going to heaven. Josiah. Okay, so the honor and shame. At some point, when we are all permanently done with the millennium and and ready for the eternal kingdom, New Jerusalem, the Lord has to wipe away all tears. No more sorrow, no more pain. So no more shame. And that should be after the millennium. But even in spite of this, that there is no more shame, that does not negate rank. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, those athletes, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. The whole point is it doesn't go away. That means when I'm in eternity and I see... John G. Patton walking down the corridors of heaven and I see his incorruptible crowns and I don't have what he has. I'm not 
ashamed and I am not, uh, I'm not filled with regret, but I see that he has a different rank. And the same idea I think you'll find with the angels, that you have Michael the archangel, he's the man, you know, that's Michael the one. Arch means, you know, arch enemy is your worst enemy. The archangel is the chief angel. And as angels walk past Michael in heaven, um, they know that's the archangel. He's the man. He's got rank. No regret. Uh, no hating yourself, no shame, but there is rank. And I think that that's what we'll have in heaven. Shame for the first thousand years if we haven't done a good job, but rank forever and ever, Josiah. Yes, and every time you see the list in the angels, you have thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. All of those, as far as we know, are rankings of angels, both good and evil angels. They have ranking and ranking is the way the Lord established it. And it has nothing to do that this, you know, angel has regrets and all of those things. We're not really talking about that. It's just rank. And we think that the rank is everlasting. Uh, Joe and then Jerry. Part. Um, again, if we, can, if we can forget that there has been 2,000 years between the first coming and second coming of Christ now. What should have happened, you know, and I know that that's a loaded term because it's all in God's providence, right? But what should have happened is that the Messianic age would have begun with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. The Jewish people should have loved their Messiah and the Romans still would have killed him and put him to death uh, because he was a rival to the Roman Empire. And so Jesus still would have died on the cross even if the Jewish people loved him and they should have, you know, they should have. It was a sin for them to do what they did. But then the Romans still would have crucified Jesus. And there still had to be, from Daniel chapter 9, a seven-year tribulation. There has to be Daniel's 70th week. And when you're reading Daniel 9, it doesn't look like there should be 2,000 years between Messiah is cut off and all of the wonderful things that are mentioned in verse 24 of Daniel 9, uh, the end of sin and reconciliation and the anointed one is honored. But now we see there's been 2,000 years between the first coming and second coming. All that should have been the Messianic age. And when Jesus died on the cross, you should have been able to count seven years and start the millennium. There had to be a seven-year tribulation because Daniel said so in 600 BC. There had to be seven years. There certainly didn't need to be 2,000 years. So when you say, what did Jesus mean when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand? He basically meant the millennium is 10 years away. Are you ready for it? 10 years away because he served. He had a three-year career on earth. Then you have to have a seven-year tribulation. So at the very beginning of his ministry, the millennium is coming in 10 years. Are you ready? That was the message. Jerry. Um, if the word kingdom is not used, we wouldn't imagine that kingdom is the intention. But just remember that at this moment, the invisible kingdom of God is in heaven. So that's why there is sometimes an overlap. Sometimes Paul says we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, he meant, you know, he's going to die. And, and at this moment, the kingdom of heaven is invisible. So if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven right now, you need to die. But someday that won't be the case. So you have to separate the today theology from the millennial theology. And if you'll, if you'll keep them separate, you'll see, well, today to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to die. Um, in the millennium to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to pass the sheep and goats judgment and you're granted admittance into the kingdom. Um, 
on earth in your mortal body. You, you don't have to you know, be changed from flesh and blood in the millennium. You're right. Yes, that's true. Not much about heaven in the Bible, but a whole lot about the kingdom of heaven. As you can see from Matthew, 50 references all there. Did I miss somebody? I'm going to call on Josiah again, unless I promise somebody. Josiah. Yeah. Well, you can imagine, think of the difference between you and Peter. When you hear the word kingdom of heaven, you, you want to think heaven. When Peter heard and preached it, you know, because the disciples went out preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they would fall over dead to think that Messiah wasn't going to set up a kingdom on earth because that's what the entire Old Testament was about. The Jewish people are finally going to have peace, you know, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. We didn't think you had to die to have peace. It was supposed to be peace on earth with the Messiah's coming. So Peter, it never even, never even occurred to him, it seems, that he would have to die to be in Messiah's kingdom because that's really not the way the Old Testament reads. It's not... And, and by the way, when you're talking to Jewish people, and rightfully so, Jewish people think very little about heaven. Um, when you're reading the Old Testament, there's almost nothing that says when you die, you're going to go to heaven. The Jewish people had that idea. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm gathered to my fathers. But Jewish people are very, very earth oriented because the Old Testament is very, very earth oriented. The Old Testament says almost nothing at all about heaven. So... When you're talking to a rabbi, very often he'll say, especially now the more liberal rabbis, say, oh, don't worry about that pie-in-the-sky-heaven stuff. Live now. That's common talk for a rabbi because that's the way the Old Testament reads. So you think kingdom of heaven, oh, that's when you go to heaven. And that's partly true. You know, the kingdom of heaven is in heaven right now. But that's not the way the Old Testament is always promising. The Old Testament is saying that the wolf is going to lie down with the lamb. And that's not a heaven problem that's fixed. That's an earth problem that needs to be fixed. Uh, Tracy. Yeah, uh, because Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. In that context, food like the sparrows who cannot have barns, clothing like the flowers who are better looking than Solomon. You seek first the kingdom of God and I'll give you all these things. But they didn't seek first the kingdom of God. They killed their king. So they didn't get the kingdom of God. And when that changes, and it will change in the tribulation, they'll seek their king and they'll have him. Sure, heaven will always be the kingdom of God, but earth isn't very cooperative. So somehow we've got to have his kingdom come so that his will is done on earth as it already is in heaven. So the, the heavenly kingdom is fine. It always has been and always will be. What we need to do is get that kingdom down here, and that's what we call the millennium. So when you die, you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, really like you're going into heaven, but someday the kingdom of heaven will be here on earth too, and we're looking forward to that in, in the fulfillment of all those Bible prophecies. So, good. Shani. Yeah. It's interesting I mean, you don't want to extrapolate on this too much, but you notice both in the parable of the talents and the pounds that one-third of the servants were not rewarded. Two of them invested and did okay. The third one buried his pound or talent, whichever parable we're in, in the earth. You always wonder, does that mean like one-third of the church hasn't done a good job and they won't be reigning with Christ? Don't know, but it's interesting that Jesus gave two different parables and you have, you know, one-third 
dropping off along the way in each of those. I don't know, but when you say a lot of people don't make the list, I suspect that that's the case. A lot of people don't make the list. Yeah, Chris. That's right. There's always time, as long as there's breath in your nostrils, there's time to recover and get to work for Jesus, and then you'll have something that you can present to him of everlasting value. First Andy, and then Mike, and then Tom. Uh-huh. Okay. So uh, at what place is Jesus reigning with a rod of iron? Obviously in heaven. He's the boss. Um, certainly uh, the angels are subject to him and all of that. So there's no problem there. In our hearts, he reigns with a rod of iron in the sense that, like in First Corinthians 11, he killed those fellows for dishonoring the Lord's Supper. But sometimes he seems to have a lot of slack as well. So I know what you're saying. Uh, is he truly the king in every believer's heart? And I don't think I know the answer to that. But we probably, there's no question that we are in the kingdom of God in the invisible sense because uh, Colossians chapter 1 says we've been translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. So we are in the kingdom and he should be ruling our hearts if he's not doing that very well. That's a problem. That's, that's sad. We live in an amazing age of grace, and I don't know why he doesn't do the Ananias and Sapphira thing more often, but I don't know why. Yeah, he's our king. We are his citizens. I don't know why he lets us get away with so much, but it's a really good question. I don't know. Mike, yeah, you're right. You can't get rewards in a day. And, you know, you, you, uh, the old illustration... Uh, the preacher takes a flower, uh, let's say it's a rose, I don't know how many petals will be on a rose, and you're 16 years old, and you think, well, I'm going to serve the Lord when I'm 20, you throw that petal away, that's not the Lord's, and then, you know, you're 20, but you're busy, and you're setting up your career, and whatever, and you throw that petal away, I'll, I'll catch the Lord lady, I, when I'm 25, you throw that petal away, and 30, and then you get to be old, and you have nothing left but a stem, here, Lord, I'll give you this, great. So, yeah, there's, you can't earn rewards in a day. I wouldn't wait till your deathbed and say a quick you know, confession of sins and say, there, that's, I'm ready for the millennium now. I don't think that's true. Josiah, yeah, well said. I, it's, if, if you will get this, you know, say, okay, they shall inherit the earth. And then there's this other thing called you know, an inheritance reserved for you in heaven. Don't bash those together, you know, keep them separate. If you'll do something simple like that, the whole Bible just begins to make sense. Like, oh, I understand what they're talking about now. You don't have to, you don't have to always look for a loophole, explain things away. You know, why is it that an envious person, a soccer mom, has to go to hell? I just don't get it. Well, nobody said that. We're saying that she's not going to do well in the millennial reign of Christ. She's not going to go to hell. She's going to be ashamed because she lived her life superficially and she shouldn't have done that. That's what we're talking about. And the whole Bible just, just relax and think, oh, yeah, I get it. I understand that. That makes sense. Uh, Kathy, I don't know how often that would happen. Here's an imaginary conversation in my mind. I'm reading one of the skeptical websites written by a gay fellow. And he says... Oh, well, what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah had nothing to do with gayness. You're, you're saying that, and 
the other Old Testament prophets said it was general evil. It had nothing to do with gayness. And then I'm reading over there in 1 Corinthians 6, and it says the effeminate people won't inherit the kingdom of God. And that's, you know, that's a euphemism for gayness. And he's like, no, that's not what that is. That, that term is used for exploiting someone in a gay sense. But we don't do that. We're not exploiting anyone. Like, oh. And even the women to change the natural use into that which is against nature. It's because they aren't naturally really that way, but we are naturally that way. And so you've explained away without the Bible just coming out and being totally vulgar, you have explained away every nice way of saying what needs to be said. And, of course, it's always flimsy. You've dodged every implication. You've found loopholes. And I think, sir, someday, not too long from now, the Lord of the universe is going to put his feet on this planet and you're going to be called to give an account of yourself. Do you have any idea how ridiculous those arguments are going to sound in that day? Have you considered standing before the Lord Jesus what your arguments are going to sound like? He has told you every way he can possibly think of without being absolutely vulgar that this is unacceptable. Can you imagine what your arguments are going to sound like? So, Kathy's question is, what if somebody is just trying to get rewards? I mean, what if they're just being totally selfish? I'm sure that that's possible. But the language of honor and shame doesn't really sound very much like somebody, you know, posing to get rewards. Uh, remember, this is a Middle Eastern culture, an Eastern culture. And you talk about the Japanese people who wanted to save face. Like we would rather do anything than bring shame on our family. I would fly my airplane into an American battleship before I am dishonored. I don't care. I, I would much rather die than be dishonored. So that's the context of Scripture. I will never allow myself to be shamed. I will not. That's the Bible. So to step into a Western culture and say, well, shame is really nothing to be afraid of. You know, when, when you're a born-again person, I would just ignore all of that. Don't, don't worry. There's, you'll never be ashamed of anything. Like, you're not even beginning to connect with the Middle Eastern culture of the Bible. You have no idea what we're talking about when we say Jesus is going to come here and you're going to get your report card. And it's not necessarily even that Jesus is going to say so much to you at that time. It doesn't matter in some ways if he said nothing at all to you. You say, these are the people I want to join me in my palace and names are read off and you get to the end of the list and your name is not on the list. Now, if your name is not on this list, 
you go over here and the angels are going to take you to another place. The rest come with me and we're going to set up a millennial reign. The horrific shame of and regret. You know, I wish I was on that list. I wonder why I didn't think about this a little bit more until now. It is taking your driver's test. Did you have butterflies in your stomach? It is. You're running a race at school and your parents are watching you. Did you have butterflies in your stomach? It is. uh, Somebody in this class is going to be recognized for such and such an award. Did you have butterflies in your stomach? We're talking about your whole life. We're not talking about one class or driver's ed or one aspect of your life. We're saying you get a report card for your whole life. So... If you have any sort of a perspective like that, if you, if you have the, the littlest glimpse of it, then there will never be a question of, well, I'm just doing this because I want to show off for a thousand years. Like, oh no, that's the least thing that I'm thinking about. What I'm thinking about is when the Lord's going through that roster, please let it be me, please let it be me, please let it be me, I want to go to the palace with you, please, 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 please. And it has nothing to do with showing off, you know, hi, everybody, look at me. I can't even imagine that. It is having your entire life evaluated on a certain day, not that long from now. That's what's going on. Our time is up, passed up. I guess you have the idea. Only let me say one thing about what they meant when they said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand is, you know, near. It's within reach. I've given you the passage there, Matthew twenty six forty six, when Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He said, my betrayer is at hand, and Judas was there right then. So at hand can mean like now. But also at hand can be a little more distant than right now. And so, for example, in Romans thirteen twelve, the Apostle Paul says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. So here he says, the day is that Jesus is going to come back soon. It's, a, it's within reach, at hand. But then he, he says exactly the opposite in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, when he says, I don't want you to worry about the day of Christ being at hand. For that day shall not come except there be first the falling away, the apostasy, and, and the man of sin be revealed. So in the Romans text, he says it is at hand. And in Second Thessalonians 2, he says it's not at hand. It's because it's a little bit like the term near. If I say right now, Christmas is at hand. Well, is it? I mean, it's two months away. Not exactly you're going to stay up for it. It's kind of a long time from now. On the other hand, it's sort of at hand. You know, it'll be here really soon, right? And that's what the Bible's doing with the term at hand. So if you can get this idea, John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples are running around talking to people in Jerusalem, and they're essentially saying this, The millennial kingdom is coming really, really soon. Are you ready for it? The king's here. The king's talking to us. Are you ready for it? And as it turns out, we think, oh, great. They said it was at hand. And here we are 2,000 years later. And uh, in a sense, that is still at hand because one day is with the Lord is 1,000 years. And in a sense, it's near. And when you think about the um, limits, you you are going to have a certain number of days and no more. And that forever and ever is the population of God's family. Um, not much time, really. Just, just uh, I mean, whatever time is left. 
But even if it's only 2,000 years between the first coming and second coming, it's like, well, that's it. Then, then you, you close the ark's door and say, that's the family then. That's all. And um, in a way, I'm sure the Lord thinks it's not much, you know, 2,000 years. We slam the door and say, well, that's, that's the end. No more in my family. So in a way, it is at hand. But that's a little tricky, and so I mentioned that as well.